Welcome to Next Gen Now with Rudina Cesare. Your inside track to technology, innovation, and the startup world. Rudina Cesare, managing partner and co-founder of Glasswing Ventures, bridges listeners with the brain trust of the business world, speaking with early adopters and industry-leading innovators. Each week, she gives you a backstage pass to the people designing, building, and marketing the companies, products, and services of the future. Now, WebmasterRadio.fm presents Next Gen Now with your host, Rudina Ciceri. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rudina Ciceri, founder and managing partner at Glasswing Ventures, and I invest in early-stage technology startups. You can follow me on Twitter at Rudina11, and for those of you who don't know, that is R-U-D-I-N-A and the numbers 1 and 1. I welcome you, our listeners, to this edition of Next Gen Now. Today on the program, we will talk about the Internet of Things and how it is becoming pervasive in our everyday lives. Most specifically, we will look at an emerging company called Dash, a device for smarter driving. I'm happy to speak about Dash with its CEO and co-founder, Jamin Addis. Beyond wanted to talk to Jamin about this very exciting company, I'm also happy to share that we went to business school together. In fact, sat right next to each other for a semester, so we go a while back. But with that, Jamin, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to be here today. And, and good to reconnect. It feels like a little reunion. But um, why don't we actually tell our listeners um, what Dash is? Let's start with that. What does Dash do? Yeah, absolutely. So Dash is a connected car platform. We started the company with a vision of making any car a smart car. Now, the way that we do that is we have brought to market a hardware and software product that allows a driver, a Dash user, to connect their phone to their vehicle. And we do that via a low-cost self-installed product called an onboard diagnostic reader, something that starts as low as 20 bucks. You can connected under your steering wheel where there is an open data port on any car since 96. And then you pair that to your phone and then you can start using the Dash product. Um, and we can talk a little bit about what that does. But essentially, it retrofits um, your smartphone to any vehicle since 1996 in the U.S. And um, how does one come up with this idea? I mean, I remember seeing you probably, what, a year and a half ago, maybe a little longer, near the NYU area in New York, and you were drawing on the whiteboards with your co-founders and still in the brainstorming phase. But did you wake up one morning and said, ah, I want my car to be a smart car? How, how, how did you come up with Dash? Yeah, absolutely. So when, when we connected, I think it was about two years ago. Two years, so okay. We were at NYU. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a professor, um, teach marketing at NYU Stern, which is funny given that you and I started up at business school and now you know, we're both on the other side of the classroom. But what a um, traitor. You've so, gone to a different uh, town and a different school. <laughs> I, hey, I know, but it's five minutes from my front door, so that makes it easier. Um, no, it's a terrific course. It's the, uh, the marketing department's very strong at NYU, and I've been teaching marketing there for six years now. So um, I met my co-founder, uh, about eight years ago um, at HBO, the TV company. Uh, we worked on products like HBO Go, also uh, smart TV products, a lot of stuff in mobile. Uh, my role there at HBO was vice president of emerging technologies R&D, and it got me in front of a lot of venture capitalists, a lot of startups in the New York, Boston uh, Valley ecosystem, um, because we were trying to bring them into HBO to do business um, and, and you know, see if we could get some of that spark of innovation into a larger company. 
it frankly got me um, starting to be green with envy, you know, as I saw these companies uh, really unleashing their creativity and innovation, uh, building new products. And although HBO is a magnificent company with great products and very, very proud of all the time we spent there, I wanted to be able to try and give it a go on our own. And Brian and I, my co-founder and CTO, uh, we were working on a product that was hardware and software for HBO Sports specifically their boxing franchise. So we were creating an array of sensors for boxers to put under their boxing gloves. We were granted a patent in the space, um, and we used to go on the road on the weekends to go to boxing fights in Connecticut or Madison Square Garden or Las Vegas to test these uh, sensor rigs on boxers, and it was fascinating. Hardware, software, big data, statistical analysis, live broadcast environment. Um, in those long drives, Brian and I would talk about you know, how the world was moving in technology towards Internet of Things, connected devices, big data, in everything from health to medical monitoring to education to connected homes. And we were having this conversation in vehicles, and that sparked a lot of, a lot of discussion, especially as we saw that uh, software innovation really was behind in the automotive space. These guys in Detroit were trying to stay solvent, not go bankrupt. Um, their digital and mobile products were really years behind. And in fact, it takes about seven years for stuff to go from their R&D labs right. to the road. Um, and we thought that there was a great opportunity for us to build something that we had seen in the uh, physical activity space or in things like Nest, the smart thermostat, and apply that to the automotive experience. And that's what we set out to do. And um, if I heard you correctly, you said something about you can retrofit cars starting with 1996 makes. What about looking forward? Do manufacturers, so let's say the 2016 cars, do they have already embedded smart devices that could potentially replace Dash? I mean, I assume the market looking backwards is pretty gigantic. Are you also looking forward on and being in, somehow embedded in the car when it first gets bought? Or how's the dynamic playing? Are you eventually competing with the car makers? Yeah, so let me answer that in, in three different ways. First of all, looking back. So the great news is we're compatible with 250 million vehicles on the road in the U.S. today. Um, right. So that'll be a 1996 uh, Toyota Corolla and a 2016 Audi top of the range. That, that's great. That legislation that meant that this data port was open in the U.S. is also in place in many territories worldwide, in the EU from uh, 2001, Canada from 1998. So we're actually compatible with a billion cars worldwide. That's a pretty good start. Now let's look forward. Um, yes, certainly uh, automotive manufacturers are starting to come out with you know, better mobility options, uh, more connected experiences. But I will tell you, again, it's not their core competency at all. They will admit that. Since we started the company a couple of years ago, we have had uh, you know, endless uh, inbound requests from car manufacturers, insurance companies, uh, people who work for the local government, uh, the Department of Transportation, all interested in harnessing this data. So, as I mentioned, car manufacturers, great at uh, mechanics, great at hardware and that uh, sort of hardcore physical engineering, not so great at software. Who is good at software? Well, it's companies like Tesla, it's companies like Google. Uh, and we often get asked that question by investors when we talk to them. And you know, the way that I'll answer that is from the horse's mouth, from those companies. People at Google have told us the self-driving car is 20 to 25 years away from being mainstream. So yes, sure, it's an amazing piece of engineering today. It can go around a, a, a closed racetrack, certain roads in California. It's being uh, legislated in other states. 
but it still cannot drive in snow, for example. Uh, there are also a lot of technical hurdles, a lot of regulatory hurdles, and a lot of consumer readiness hurdles before it even gets close to mainstream. So let me worry about the 20 to 25 year view uh, going, going forward. As a startup, we worry about 20 weeks or 20 months ahead. <laughs> um, as it pertains to Tesla, again, amazing experience, um, what they're doing with uh, pushing software updates to their cars, and you can't beat that giant touchscreen in a Tesla. But understand, that's less than 0.1% of the market. Most of the future of Tesla is going to be around um, you know, powertrains and, and electrical batteries, uh, not necessarily selling their fancy uh, high-end automotive. So right. um, all that is, is raising awareness of automotive technology. It's great for us. Um, we, we built first a, uh, an experience that would work on smartphones, Android and iOS phones, so over 95% of the market, um, and using a device that... Uh, drivers could self-install. That way we wouldn't be at the mercy of the car manufacturers. Do we want to have a relationship with them where we are pre-installed or in the aftermarket we're installed or dealers upsell or subsidize that device? Absolutely. And we have multiple uh, conversations happening uh, with those companies right now. Um, but for the time being, we are really focused on that sort of standalone over-the-top product and it's served us very well. No, that's very interesting. So what, you have different constituents. So let's start with the consumer. What is the value proposition to me, the consumer, of buying Dash from $20 to what is the upper bound of the pricing for your products? Is it a hardware yeah, piece so, and then a subscription or how does it work? And what's the value prop? Yeah. So you, yes. So let's start with that cost um, item. So you can get these devices actually for even cheaper. I mean, some, some devices are available on Amazon for $5. Uh, you know, they're going to be from Chinese manufacturers. They're not necessarily the best quality or, uh, you know, not even necessarily, uh, I would say, the, the best security. And we can, we can uh, address that later on. Um, the ones that we recommend, we have a reference device which sells for $69, uh, sorry, $59. And we support third-party devices going all the way up to $200, some with Wi-Fi, some with Bluetooth, some with 3G, uh, 4G connectivity. Now, what's the value proposition? Why would you do that? Well, we give away the software for free. And as I said, we don't make any money on the, on the hardware. Uh, we're just trying to get it into as many consumers' hands as possible so we can make the overall experience better and gather more data that will be helpful to uh, consumers and enterprises. So the value prop for consumers, we did a lot of research in this early, early on, um, hundreds of consumer surveys asking what you would like uh, in your driving experience digitally in a mobile environment. And we got answers all over the shop. Um, we were able to point to some benchmarks of success, things like LoJack for security track, tracking or OnStar for maintenance or roadside assistance um, that were a good start, but also very, very expensive. Expensive hardware needed mechanics to install it and expensive uh, subscriptions. So even though OnStar had the, the, the distribution and marketing power of GM um, and have been installed in millions and millions of vehicles, they only have about 5 million users who annually subscribe to it and pay for it. So what we thought in the first instance is, is there an opportunity for us to create an affordable to low to no cost um, uh, mobile software that takes on something like OnStar? So that was the first thing. Mm-hmm. And then as we added more features to that, we did things like uh, trip tracking, which is useful for expenses. We'll show you the last place you parked. Hi, we'll tell you where the cheapest gas is nearby. Um, if your engine light goes off, we'll explain to you what's wrong in plain English in real time, how critical it is, how much it costs to fix in parts and labor, and where you can find a cheap and reliable mechanic nearby. So it is really a spectrum from uh, fun, delightful experiences, like sharing your, your great road trips on social media, through to very much around utility, control, and convenience, uh, improving the, the experience of owning uh, and maintaining a vehicle. And those are the two 
so ends of the spectrum we address. When we talk in marketing speak, it's um, Dash makes any car a smart car. Uh, we make driving smarter, safer, greener, and more affordable for everyday drivers. No, that's very interesting. And then why are um, car manufacturers potentially interested in, partner, in partnering with you? Are you going back and on a de-identified basis perhaps selling data to them, aggregate? Are they, do they, what do they get, um, if anything, for in, pre-installing you in the car? I guess they could charge more, sure, and take a, a rev share, but any interest in the data you provide? Yeah, absolutely. So when we have conversations with car manufacturers, um, and dealerships. One of the things that we learned early on is that certainly on the dealership side, they really do not make an awful lot of money or margin, if you will, on the sale of the vehicle. It's all around maintenance and repairs and bringing you back um, during the lifetime of owning that product to get that servicing done at the dealership. So what they want to do is keep that relationship with the driver after you drive off the lot. Um, and you know they can send you uh, marketing materials when they guess that you may need an oil change or you may hit your 20,000 mile checkup, but they don't really know. What we are able to do is identify when those maintenance um, uh, t- uh, items need to be serviced uh, with real data and analytics. Now, to be very, very clear, we do not share a driver's personally identifiable information uh, with any third party without the explicit opt-in of that user. So we'll never share that. Now, if the user signs up at a dealership to Dash, and we can, um, we can tie that user to the dealership with their opt-in uh, and a token, then some limited amount of data can be shared back around uh, needing some, some service item. We're not going to share your uh, trip information, your GPS coordinates. We'll never share any of that stuff uh, with dealerships. But all of this has to be done with uh, both parties opting in. So we help facilitate that. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, our primary... Uh, customer today is the driver, the everyday driver, the passenger vehicle. It's the, the mom, the dad, the teen driver, people trying to get by on the roads every day safely, um, trying to reduce their emissions, trying to put money back in their pocket for gas, repairs, maintenance, and insurance. That's our primary stakeholder. Um, as we look forward 12, 24 months out, um, we'll be doing more on the insurance side, on the fleet, uh, commercial trucking side, and working with cities. And we've already started to make great headway uh, in that direction. Which actually makes perfect sense, right, Damon? Because um, if you do well by the consumers and, quote-unquote, on the consumer, everyone else, all the other stakeholders from the insurance companies, the car manufacturers to cities from and others who might be interested on the compliance side, um, will gravitate and want to participate in your ecosystem. And uh, by the way, um, it was interesting, and I agree with you, that you refer to Dash as a platform. With that, um, we need to take a break, but when we come back. Um, I will continue my conversation with Jamin Edis, CEO and co-founder of Dash. Next Gen Now will return staying ahead of the technology curve after a word from our sponsors. Are you paying too much for your paid advertising? Or have you quit altogether because it seemed like a huge waste of money? I'm David Ogletree, president of WME Training. Did you know that companies waste 25% of their PPC spend on average? At WME Training, we can show you how to make your AdWords account a lean, mean, converting machine. Whether you're just starting out or want to take your skills to the next level, we have a class for you. Contact the marketing experts at WMETraining.com. 
Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. We're back with more Next Gen Now, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Here's Rudina Ciceri. Welcome back to Next Gen Now. I'm Rudina Ciceri, and I'm joined by Jamin Edis, CEO and co-founder of Dash. So, Jamin, before the break, we were actually talking about your value prop to consumers and then also the ecosystem um, participants, if you will, around the Dash platform. If we look at the world at the 30,000-feet level, how are you? How does Dash and more broadly, what's your view around the Internet of Things wave? And we can call it that, or we can call it Internet of Things, and the, this notion of pervasive connectivity. And the way I define that term is basically in the not too distant future, any device around a hundred bucks or even fifty bucks will have sensors and connectivity. So. How does how do you view this IoT movement or wave that's emerging, and how does Dash fit in that bigger picture? Yes, look, I, I tell you the thing that gets us um, out of bed uh, every day <laughs> to come into the office or work late at night is uh, because the Internet of Things ex- is what excites us. Yeah. You know, Brian and I, as uh, drivers, as people who are engaged in the automotive space, we do that not as people who've had 20 or 30 years of experience in automotive as a sector. Our backgrounds are consumer technology, hardware, software, mobility, data. We are applying that to a vertical, which is, happens to be automotive. Um, you know, we would be as excited to applying that within the home or for medical, medical monitoring or education, you name it. Um, it so happens that we thought there was a terrific opportunity and we main, maintain that there is in automotive. But IoT, I think, is a tremendous wave of innovation, of opportunity, um, of investment. 
And we see ourselves positioned within that wave. And that's certainly when we engage with investors or you know, a certain type of press, um, typically the conversation will get to IoT, as we're finding today, because uh, there's a lot of shared excitement about it. Do you do you find also from a consumer interest that the term IoT or the results of it are actually becoming more um, pervasive in the consumer market? They, they, you know, we as consumers don't yet use the term IoT, even though you know that's I'm putting my consumer hat on from my VC hat and you as a technologist and entrepreneur for sure. IoT is everyday sort of consumption type term. But do you see that we're already in the consumer lives in a meaningful way or do you still think we're three to five years away let's just say yes look i think you can point to things that have been successful in flying the flag of iot um, and those are things like physical activity trackers the fitbit right. the nike fuel the jawbone then you look at the home with nest and smart things and august smart locks um, there are a lot of companies that are pushing the envelope on that. And even within, frankly, our space, there are um, certainly many more competitors today than there were two or three years ago when we started. Um, so there are certain categories, I think, that are doing a good job of moving that forward. Yes, it's still a little early. It's still a little bit wonky for some people, especially on the consumer side, where I think you are going to see more early success and monetization is on the enterprise side and in industrial in particular. Um, a lot of factories, um, and logistics um, businesses are being fitted with these sensors because they are cheaper. It's uh, cheaper to, to rig them, cheaper to connect them, um, cheaper to analyze that data and actually have uh, actionable insights that fall out of it. So industrial and enterprise, I think, is where you're going to see uh, the earlier wins. Um, but that I maintain that there is still consumer excitement uh, in, the, in, in the consumer tech space. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, I'm not sure I would be um, perfectly comfortable trying to predict what it looks like in five years' time. I certainly know what our roadmap in the connected car is for, for two years' time. But it's a, the exciting thing about this space is it's moving so rapidly. Um, it's almost like that first wave of the Internet, the first wave of mobility. Uh, now we're seeing that with connected devices. Got it. Okay, and then um, it's interesting, though, because as you spoke about various examples of IoT-type companies, you spoke of connected, like Fitbit connected devices, and then, you know, we talked about the smart locks. And one of the interesting and most fascinating pieces for me as an investor, as I think about my investment strategies going forward, is this notion that connectivity is not enough, that you need some intelligence, you need some smartness beyond the branding of a smart device, beyond the marketing lingo, if you will, where there is some sort of AI, some sort of predictive, some sort of machine learning um, that goes on. Bringing the conversation back to Dash, are you leveraging any AI capabilities within uh, your platform? And if so, let's talk a little bit more about that. Yes. So um, the short answer is yes. And without revealing too much about a confidential roadmap, um, let, let me look back 18 to 24 months when we first started pitching this to people like yourself and other <laughs> investors um, to get behind this vision. It was, let's start with the consumer side. If we can prove demand there, um, then that will mean we get users and we get data. That will then mean that we can open up the platform because developers can build on top of that data. They wouldn't want to build on a ghost town, essentially. And then once we have the platform as the second pillar, the third pillar will be enterprise, and we will create... Uh, enterprise-grade solutions on top of our platform, which will then allow us to monetize. So that's how it's phased. Consumer, number one. Developer platform, number two. Enterprise, number three. And we are now uh, on that third phase. We've checked every box up until then. So 
So far, so good. What I will say is, whereas the conversation was all big data two years ago, very much now it is machine learning and, and AI. I don't Agreed. think they are mutually exclusive. I think AI and machine learning requires big data. I think they are almost interchangeable. Um, it's a, it's, it can be you know, occasionally a lazy, a lazy shorthand for press investors or entrepreneurs just to say, this is my bucket, I check that yeah. box. Um, but I think you know, unless you have data, and that data can be uh, GPS, it can be engine performance, it can be video inputs, uh, unless you have that data, it's very, very hard to start trying to extrapolate meaning from that. We are at a point, two years in market, where we have really, really hard-earned data which is really, really defensible and really, really useful. And you know, one of the things that we released uh, about a week or two ago um, was showing a data visualization of our, of our dash driving data, which is aggregated and anonymized, which shows essentially the streets of New York City coming to life with our dash drivers. That data is uh, really what gets people excited, whether it's you know, in the city, how can they reduce congestion, improve traffic management, uh, re reduce emissions, how can logistics be more efficient, how can insurers better price their products, how can uh, you know, consumers uh, make sure that their parents or teens are, are driving safely. That's really what you can do with the data. That's what is our job now, to translate that data into something that is super actionable, and we spend every day doing that. Got it. So let's, last few minutes that we have got left, let's talk a little bit about Jamin as an entrepreneur. So if I were to take the liberty to modify the saying where it takes a village to raise a child, it takes co-founders to get a company started. And um, you are, in the, besides being an entrepreneur yourself, you are an entrepreneur in residence for Stern and um, NYU. How do you actually sort of view the trade-offs and benefits between being a single founder and a co-founder? And is there an ideal number two or three? Or let's explore that topic a little bit, if you will. Absolutely. Look, we um, as a company, we were lucky to go through a technology accelerator program called TechStars, which is a essentially a three-month boot camp for startups. Um, it's highly competitive. Uh, in fact, it's more competitive to get into than, than Harvard and Stanford. I think for our <laughs> program cohort, there was a 0.7% acceptance rate, about 1,700 applicants for 10 spots. So that was a great validation of the idea back in the spring of 2013, and we used that as a springboard to then go and raise our money. Um, for these accelerator programs, uh, oftentimes, informally, um, the people who run those look for, at the bare minimum, two co-founders because they have a lot of proof points. And seeing companies go through, seeing the ones that succeed and the ones that fail, and generally, as a rule of thumb, they've found that single founders are really, really um, uh, tough, I think, to predict success or assume some kind of success trajectory. Now, every, every rule is meant to be broken, but I think two is a starting point where you have one person who is much more technical, who's able to code, uh, to bring a product to life, and then one person who is the business head who can help with product, sales, marketing, business development, legal, finance, admin, operations, all that kind of stuff. Now, I was very, very lucky that I managed to build a relationship uh, with Brian Langle, my co-founder at HBO. Uh, over eight years ago, uh, we knew how each other worked, our strengths, our weaknesses. Um, it was much easier for us then to essentially link arms and jump over the cliff together to do this project. Um, and I would say that you know, one technical, one non-technical founder is pretty much the minimum of how you would like to start. Um, and, you know, there are plenty of arguments for, for other, um, other makeups of teams, but that's definitely a good start. 
And Jamin, you know, in this experience, what have been some of the, you know, you've done this for two years, what have been some of the surprises, good or bad, that you wouldn't have expected, even though you have been in and around technology all sort of, at least for most of your professional life, what would you say were the top two or three surprises? Um, And then maybe what was your biggest challenge? Let's talk about that. When you are at the outside looking in, uh, in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, um, you will follow the press. You will see people in the industry uh, you know, interacting on Twitter. You see the deals that get funded, the big announcements. Um, and oftentimes, it seems like every idea in the world uh, is getting funded. You know, every day you're seeing huge rounds for oftentimes very frivolous ideas being announced in the press in TechCrunch. So I think going in, we knew that we had a very smart idea. We knew that there were big markets we were tackling. We knew that we were a very capable team. And so that we thought, look, let's prove that we can uh, put together a business case here, that we can build a uh, minimum viable product in the space, and that you know, it should be fairly straightforward to raise money. This was back in 2013. Right. What we found is it's actually much harder than we had anticipated. Yep. There are certainly sort of clubs of people who fund each other, um, and oftentimes that's where you'll get some of the sort of bad behavior and bad ideas found, um, f- uh, funded. But um, we really had to earn you know, every single dollar that we got in from investors. And you know, that's humbling. Um, it also toughens you up. And it, it, you know, I think we learned lessons on the road. I mean, we had hundreds, and that is hundreds, of investor meetings one way or another. And it's the same as any other marketing funnel. You look to convert 2 to 5% of them. Um, and that's what we did. But it takes a lot of effort, a lot of time. And I think I underestimated quite how much time it would take to do that. Um, and we're certainly making sure that we don't make those mistakes again um, as we go out to raise more. Jamin, in the last couple of minutes, um, if there is sort of one parting thought that you'd give our audience in terms of Dash and buying it, take it and use it into a promotional minute, what would you say to them? To, a, to an everyday driver, to a consumer? Yes, to an everyday driver who is our yes. listener. Yes, look, I, in, in the U.S., uh, as I mentioned, there are about 250 million vehicles on the road. Unfortunately, there are 4 million accidents every year. There are about 35,000 deaths on the road every year. Many, many, many of them are preventable through better driving behavior, through safer behaviors, through better habits, through better uh, car maintenance. And we want to do our part to help reduce that by incentivizing safer driving behaviors. In addition, the average vehicle may uh, pump out something like 10 uh, tons of CO2 every year. Whatever we can do through altering your driving behavior, less acceleration, less hard braking, to maximize fuel efficiency, to hit those EPA ratings, um, can save you not only money, but reduce greenhouse gases. Um, so, you know, reduction of emissions, um, uh, improving safety, and then helping put money back in your pockets for gas, repairs, maintenance, and insurance. Uh, from our, our analysis, um, we found that through your own behavioral changes uh, behind the wheel and better maintenance of the vehicle, you can reduce about 20% of your variable costs of driving. For the everyday family in the U.S. and indeed internationally, that is very real, cents, dollars, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars a year. Um, and that's, you know, that's what we are trying to achieve uh, with the product that we're bringing to market today. Excellent. Well, with that, we are out of time. I'd like to thank you, Jamin, you, Jamin um, Edis, CEO and co-founder of Dash, for joining us today. And, of course, my producer, Brasco, for another great show. I also thank you, our listeners, for partaking in this edition of Next Gen Now.
New episodes of Next Gen Now air Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. If there is a topic you'd like me to cover, please tweet me at Rudina11. And again, that's R-U-D-I-N-A and the numbers 1 and 1. I'm Rudina Ceseri, and I look forward to speaking with you next time right here on Next Gen Now. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.